Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to episode 70 of Maximize Your Influence. Steve Olson here along with Kurt Mortensen, and we're steaming into the holiday season, about to take a couple of weeks off from the podcast. So if you don't hear from us, that's why we're being lazy. We will surely have plenty of reports for you about all the food and and lazy things that we have done. But it's a a great time of year and a lot of different persuasion tactics on display, kind of like back on Black Friday, right, Kurt? That's right. Happy holidays, everyone. Thanks for being here. Yeah, we will take a few weeks off. We'll be back the first part of January. We'll keep you posted. But it is a great time of year, and we go to the mall. It is a persuasion hot zone of subconscious triggers. And to become a great persuader, just be aware. See what's happening out there. See what people are doing. It's kind of fun to say, oh, yeah, social validation. Oh, that's involvement. Scarcity over there. And it just becomes part of who you are, and it really helps you in your ability to persuade and influence. Yeah, it does. It does. And we, we kind of had an interesting article to talk about today. Why don't you cue up Urkel? Urkel, give it to us. Urkel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. This one's and if you about, hate Urkel, let us know. We'll fight a new one. <laughs> they, don't, they don't hate Urkel. We would have, uh, the inbox would have right? been flooded. It's just you. You're, oh, all right. You're well. projecting your beliefs onto the audience. Well, hopefully it's working, my persuasion, my influence, my charisma. They're feeling that, no, no more Urkel. But anyway, (laughs) perusing the Journal of Experimental Child Psychology, came across a very interesting article for the geeky moment today about your kids and threats and lying. And as parents know, at their certain age where kids have learned that, hey, lying's pretty cool. I don't get into trouble. So what happens here is if you don't want your children to lie, don't threaten to punish them if they do, which is kind of counterintuitive. But what they found is that children are more likely to tell the truth because they want to please an adult or because they just believe it's the right thing to do, not because of any threat or promised repercussions, they said. They did research with hundreds of kids, and they were videotaped. They're told not to peek at this toy when they're alone, and they tried some different things as far as the threats versus, hey, it's the right thing to do. So they did find that two-thirds of them peaked when they were threatened with punishment. And they thought they could get away with it. You know, punishment can backfire. It's great when you're there and hovering as a parent. But the one thing is, when you're gone and you're not there, and they think they can get away with it, it's a whole other thing. And that's the, the frontal lobe thing, too. It's all about the here, the now, the punishments in the past. They might not get in trouble. But the bottom line they found, and this is Victoria Talwar, She's a professor at McGill University. She says that punishment did not promote truth-telling, which is an interesting thing. We're both parents, Steve. It's an interesting thing. But even during that holiday season, maybe we just need to recruit Santa a little bit more. I don't know. What do you think? Well, yeah, the punishment thing, I don't think that it really works, or the threats. I was thinking about what a con the whole Santa thing is the other day. (laughs) Oh, I've got our children listeners plug their ears. Earmuffs. Earmuffs, (laughs) kids. But... I mean, you, you think about it, like like if a grown adult said, hey, you got to be really good because this guy is going to give you some stuff if you are. And then later it comes out that it didn't really happen, that I was just lying to you to get you to be good, and it was an elaborate scheme of uh, bribery. 
<laughs> yeah, that is interesting as a parent. I mean, it's kind of fun for the kids to believe and to do it, but then on the other hand, you're like, well, we've been lying to him for years. And it's at a whole new, a whole new level. Uh, you told me you hadn't heard of this Elf on the Shelf thing. It's just terrible. It's this now the guy that invented it or woman, whoever it is, you know, they're rolling around in a bunch of hundred dollar bills right now, laughing at us. But <laughs> what what they did is this. It's this book, and it comes with a little stuffed doll elf thing. Right. And you read the story to your kids. And apparently Santa sent this elf from the North Pole and he sits on your shelf and he's watching. And every night when you go to bed, he flies back to the North Pole to tell on you to Santa about if you've been good or bad. And the parents, of course, are supposed to move the elf after the kids go to bed so that they wake up and it's a game. Oh, he moved, he flew back and now he's over here. Right. <laughs> But I get so tired of moving that freaking elf. It just <laughs> and we, the other night we forgot, so we had to make up this BS story about why the elf didn't fly to the North Pole that night, and he was still in the same place. <laughs> oh man, I, I'm feeling a little Scrooge here. What's going on? Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> I think everybody after a couple couple years of elf on the shelf starts turning into Scrooge and getting, yeah. getting all Grinchy. It's interesting. The kids try to be good for a little while. How long does it last? I've even noticed with my teenagers that you back them into a corner, you make them retell the lie several times is much different than, okay, you that's your story. You want to stick with it? You sure you don't want to give me a different story? Having a the door open for them to kind of adjust it a little bit versus backing in a corner it has a lot more success that I've seen than the punishment factor. Yeah, yeah. We're going through that right now. I just got done putting my daughter in a timeout because she is grounded from the iPad and... uh caught her using the ipad and she's the kind that if you back into a corner you're just gonna hear about it for days i told her last night that she would be a really good court clerk because she likes to chronicle and keep track of all the injustice in the world <laughs> yeah <that's, laughs> we have to record those for future family reunions i guess it would be yeah yeah i think so she was telling my wife last night that you're not like the so-and-so neighbor's mom they're really nice and my wife was just fuming, trying to, <laughs> you know, trying to right. hold back from giving her the tongue lashing of a lifetime. That's right. That none of my friends have curfews. We're like, okay, yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No parents cares about their kids, so they can do whatever they want at any time. Uh-huh. All right. Anyway, <laughs> the joy of children, the joy of Christmas, all coming together. But there are different ways, and that's the interesting thing for parents is that and parents already know this is that. In persuasion, you persuade people they want to be persuaded. And with your children, they're different. They have different personalities, different styles. And so sometimes you have to adjust your persuasion attempts by child because they are so different. And then that's with people too. Not that children aren't people. You might feel that way sometimes. But it's just (laughs) what works for this person doesn't work for that person. And for me, really, it's hard when you have people who are a little bit more slow and analytical and deliberate. You know that saying that slow is fast, right? (laughs) And some prospects are like that taking your time, doing things that to you just seem totally inefficient and a horrible use of time is actually, believe it or not, the quickest way to get it done. It's, it's crazy. In fact, it's funny. My my wife and I, were we were wrapping presents last night and we had on The Office. We decided we're going to watch, we're going to rewatch The Office over the holiday season and, and laugh and have fun, right? And there was a scene that illustrates this point where the manager or the CFO or somebody comes from New York to Scranton, Pennsylvania, where the office is filmed, and they're going to meet with this guy from the county 
who they want to sell a bunch of paper to. That's their their paper salesman. So the CEO person comes in from New York and they're going to show the local sales manager how it's done. And they sit down at Chili's and she gets right to the point and wants to talk about paper. And then the local manager keeps derailing it and telling stupid jokes and asking the guy from the county all these dumb questions. And, you know, she's kind of dying inside, like you're wasting so much time. We have a sale to make here, right? And by the end of the night, after all this just banter and talk, the guy says, okay, so I'll take this much in paper. <laughs> they didn't even talk about paper, right? <laughs> and it's because that was his style. He wanted to be friends. He wanted to have a good time. He wanted to talk. And you've got other people who they just want the bottom line. They just want the point. And the banter isn't going to get you anywhere. It's kids. It's prospects. It's all of it. They all have a different way. And that's so true. And that's even based on culture. I know in the Middle East, you don't even think about business until you've talked about family, until you've bonded, until there's a friendship, until there's something there. If you go straight to business, with, which is what a lot of Americans want to do, it'll really backfire on you. Yeah, that's that's how I am. You know, Somebody I don't know is asking me, eh, how many kids you have? I'm like, you don't care, and I don't want to tell you, <laughs> no. right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right. Well, last episode, we talked about persuasive writing and getting attention. Remember, if we the, the irony in persuasive writing is, is if you can have a picture with it, <laughs> okay? So it's not just the writing, because pictures and music and smells and all those things a lot of times impact how somebody will perceive the writing. In fact, a lot of times writing is we, we get the mood out of it based on the mood that we're in, right? You, know, you could send somebody a text message or an email saying, hey, how you doing? Did you get that report filed? Right? But if they're in a crappy mood, you sent them, how you doing? Did you get that report filed? Right, It comes across as naggy and irritated because people perceive writing based on the mood that they are in, not how it was written. And so anything else that you can use to your advantage, uh, pictures and graphics and those kinds of things, help frame the writing and the mood that it's supposed to be taken in. And that's a lot about what we discussed last time. And you have to have attention-getting devices and phrases and things like that. Sometimes people take a little too far. Sometimes you might think they're taking it a little too far. But it did exactly what it was supposed to. It got your attention, doesn't it? It does. You have to figure out which emotions you want to trigger. And a big part of that, of course, is going to be the words you use. We all know that every word you use affects our attitudes and emotions. Your words you use affect your credibility. And the wrong word could trigger the wrong emotion, could trigger the wrong type of fear, could trigger the wrong type of emotion that could really backfire on you. And as a wordsmith, we call it, when you're doing copywriting, you have to look at every word. Are you using if versus when, try versus will? I mean, so many words we can talk about. Are you using but and discounting yourself? Those are some things that you need to think about. We're not going to spend a lot of time going on each word, but there's some interesting words that really do pull well. In fact, here's an interesting study that when they ask people to buy something, they divided the people into thirds. In the first group, it was half price. The second group was buy one, get one free, and the third group was 50% off. And our logical mind's going, well, those are pretty much the same. Half off, buy one, get one free, 50% off. But the one that outpulled the other was the one with the word free. Buy one, get one free, outpulled the others by 40%. And that is something you have to take a look at. When you look at the words, when you're using good words like, you know, free is a great word, benefit, proven, discover, guarantee, easy, fun, results using the words you and your quite a bit. And those are the things you have to take a look at. Every word matters. You have to do that. Simple words are more persuasive than complex words. Emotional words 
are more persuasive than unemotional words. So you can think about every word you want to use and think about which emotion you want to trigger. Words matter. They certainly do. So we we want to get a little bit more. We've done this on the podcast, I don't know, like 40 episodes ago. It's been forever. And you you alluded to it here that, well, some words are certainly better than others. Some of them pack more of a punch. Some of them leave the feeling that you want to be, that you want left. So we, we're getting attention. We're using pictures, those kinds of things that we talked about on the last episode. Now we're getting the actual nitty gritty of, of wordsmithing, as you say. So are there certain words that we should absolutely never use? Or is that just a case by case type of a thing? Well, it's case by case. I'd steer away from profanity, but there's probably some markets if you're going after truck drivers, it yeah. might be a good thing to use to uh, sharpen up your profanity. The main thing is to really look at the word and see if it has a negative emotional feeling. Because we know things like contract should be paperwork. Sign here should be endorse or autograph. Make an appointment is even having strange trigger words because we're thinking of doctors and waiting for two hours. Maybe it's a time to visit or to drop by. Even large companies, when someone's looking at a manual and they hey, this looks interesting, they call up corporate and the secretary or the receptionist says, Oh, great. Hold on. Let me transfer you to sales, <laughs> which triggers resistance. No one wants to be sold. Why can't it be a yeah, consultant yeah. or a representative? And the same is true with your writing is are you using things that could well, cause people, oh, wait, contractor, and I need to make an appointment, and how long is this going to take? And wait a minute, there's a cancellation policy versus saying something like right of rescission or maybe not even mentioning it all till later. Those are things that really matter when you're wordsmithing your copy. So I think there are probably a few words, like you said, that everybody should go through their copy, their emails, what they're doing, and, and gut some of this stuff out of there immediately. Is that right? Absolutely. Like those things like contract and such. So using other people for this is typically the best because you did it. You wrote the copy or your company did, and you're really in your head on that kind of a thing, right? It, it might be hard for you to relate from the, the point of view of the prospect, right? For example, I've got a a property listed right now, and I've got a couple agents over there to tell me what they think about it. Because I I rehabbed this thing, I'm the listing agent on it, I just can't see it objectively anymore, right? I have too much time and emotion into this deal. So we've got to have other people look at our copy and say, how does this make you feel? What does it make you think? And you've got to take those things like contract and rescission, those ominous things out there. Your copy, yes, it has to be accurate, Right, you can't m misrepresent it, but it can't have that ominous, uh, that ominous feeling. It's it's funny, Kurt, that in my business, when somebody is buying a home from me or one of my associates, that buyer is is usually going to get a home inspection. Right, this is where a third party contractor goes over to the house. They charge the person three hundred bucks or whatever, and they crawl all through that thing. They get in the attic. They look at the the furnace and the roof and the foundation, and they come back with a report that is supposed to be objective and say, the house is in good condition except for X, Y, and Z, right? I found, I found these things to be defective or you need to look into these things better. And guys in my industry, we, we just don't like home inspectors at all. <laughs> we call them deal killers because their word choice can be so terrible sometimes. We joke that if there was an oil stain on a driveway, a home inspector would say, there's evidence of petroleum contamination, right? <laughs> and that kind of word choice is so ominous 
we tell these guys, hey, look, you can tell the person the problem without killing the deal here. This is not really an issue, but they make it sound like it is. And the funny thing, you and I talked about this on the show before, that's a lot of times that's them building their value, right? They're trying to show how important they are. Proving their worth. Proving their worth. And so we need to look at our copy. Is there anything that's going to scare people away? Word choice that's going to make it seem more ominous than it really is. Here's the thing about copywriting that's really important when you're doing an email or anything, and this is what helped me out the most, is that you mentioned having other people's eyes look at it, which is an important thing too, but also you're not going to sit down and write perfect copy the first time you write it. Your goal and what's helped me is you just sit down and you'll vomit all your good ideas, what you think should be there, and it's almost like you're sculpting where it might take 10, 20 visits to this thing to read it through, put it on the shelf, read it through, read it through, change it up, adjust it up, get another set of eyes. It's a sculpting process. and It doesn't have to be done in one shot. And when you can realize that, it reduces stress and it makes it a lot better because it gives you time to really create something that really is persuasive and influential. Right, right. I send letters to people to buy their houses and the letter that I, I send has been, it's been used millions of times across the country. Right. It's very well proven. And it took years and, and a lot of testing to dial it into that one. And we're not even done yet. Right. I mean, what what else can we say differently that will be more effective? So, yeah, it is testing. You can get another set of eyes, but what better set of eyes than your actual audience and, and testing it? And then you're like you said, you're running it through the cycle a bunch of different times, a bunch of different drafts, because I, this probably happened to you. You write something you think it's pretty good. You got to sleep on it, right? <laughs> yeah. You got to just you know let your brain rest, and then you go look at it the next day, and you're like, "What was I talking about here?" Right? Yeah, things look pretty good late at night in the morning. You're like, "What was going uh-huh. on?" Yeah, <laughs> and that's true. And that's an important point you bring up is that when you test it, keep track of the numbers. And when you test it again, don't change five or six things. Change one thing. Maybe change the headline and see what the numbers do. And you're adjusting, you're sculpting, you're creating, you're doing it. And you're getting to the point to where, like the letter you mentioned, it takes in years and probably tens of thousands of people to take a look at it to get where it needs to be. Good, good. So we've talked about the bad words that we don't want to use. Now, is there anything that we should really try to work into the copy that is going to be more effective than on the last episode? We need to write how we would speak versus in academia, they teach you to be all proper. But we're trying to persuade here. We don't want to be proper. We want money. <laughs> okay, so are there any phrases or word choices that make our message more powerful and make it stick a lot better? Well, the first one you mentioned, it's got to be conversational. I'm just reading a conversation. It's flowing well. It's not choppy. I'm getting into it. So anytime that you can use, I mean, words that are proven, words like guarantee, words like results, you see a lot of it. It's easy. It's fun. It's benefits are those type of words that really trigger people what they're looking for and that's part of knowing your demographic as far as which words are really grabbing at them but those are words that pull really really well and uh, help you grab people's attention so it, it's that because i've noticed too there was an interesting study that you talk about uh, when it came to making copies at a university and the use of the word because do you remember what i'm talking about Oh, sure. That was uh, Lane Langer, I believe. She's a social psychologist at Harvard. And actually, she does a lot of studies, especially for lawyers, because they go to court sometimes just to figure out what words they can and can't use because it makes such a big difference. But she wanted to test out some different words. So she'd go to the photocopier at the Harvard Library, wait till about five people in line and try to cut. And she wanted to see which word choice had the most compliance. And so the first time around, she's all, excuse me, 
uh, being polite, excuse me, may I cut in line? I'm in a rush. And about 60% let her in. So she tried that for a while. And then she just added one word. She said, excuse me, may I cut in line because I'm in a rush? And it shot up to 94%. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The third time around, she says, excuse me, may I cut in line because I need to make some copies? <laughs> well, duh. <laughs> They let her cut in line 93% of the time. It didn't really change that much, but the word is because it's a subconscious trigger word. Your mind, your subconscious just automatically assumes you're going to give us a valid reason even if you don't. That is another a power word that's been proven time and time again. That's when you're a kid, you, your parents or your friend, why are you doing that? Because. That's right. right? It, the word by itself is a, a reason that is compelling. So people hear that and subconsciously they automatically think that that whatever comes afterward is valid. In the study by Elaine Langer, like you said, that that corroborates that. Be, why else are you in the line, right? Well, you said because this must be legit. I got I got to step aside here. So, if you have something about your product or your service that is, uh, there's always something about your product or service that's not great, right? Nobody has the perfect uh, product or service. That would be impossible. Okay. And some of you might argue, oh, mine's perfect. It's not. There's always something. And you have to explain it. And that's when you bring in the because, right? We have to do it this way because. And, and then they're going to start to to validate that themselves. Another power word to add to that, which has been showing up on the radar screens, is the word fact. The facts are the fact show. Let's talk about the facts. or just something powerful about, hey, it's the fact, the fact. They don't spend the time to research the facts, but that is another power word you can add into your copy. Well, who's going to argue with a fact? You're just unreasonable. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I've seen that in exactly. advertising. Fact, right? Dodge trucks are 77% more efficient, right? And, and like you said, who's going to go dig around and verify that? Yeah, they do that too. Fact. And then they go fiction, which would have the opposite, depending on what you were trying to do, it would have the same response. Yeah. And I, I've seen people do that where they say, well, our competitor says that they get X, Y, and Z. And you should really go with us because the facts show, right? That's a, <laughs> a set formula to invalidate the competition and make yourself seem more legitimate. And that's another word, too, you could strategically use. I mentioned earlier is the word but that negates everything in front of it. If you use it the wrong way, it'll hurt you. But if you want to negate maybe a Something about your product or service that you need to downplay a little bit, you can use the word but to kind of discount it a little bit to where it doesn't have the same impact. That's true because. Because, yeah. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We've got prospects that are a lot more skeptical, a lot more educated, as you always say. And if you just sit there trashing on the competition, you don't come across as objective, and that's what people want. Brian Tracy says people don't like to be sold. They like to make an intelligent buying decision, right? And and we you know we, we can all be honest and say, hey, look, our competition, some of them are good. Some of them have legitimately good products and they do a good job. And for you to try to just say otherwise when that's not the case makes you seem as, uh, like that cheesy salesman. And people have radar for the cheesy salesman. So in order to play both sides there, you can admit to some of the merits of your competition and then you're immediately going to use the butt, like Kurt said. You know, well, yeah, the XYZ company, they do a good job with A, B, and C, but you'll find, and, and so you appear objective, you've admitted to that, but subconsciously you've invalidated that in your prospect's mind. Absolutely, yeah, we are the most expensive, but 
there are different ways to do that and strategically do that, just wordsmithing your copy. Yeah, yeah. Anything else that you'd like to add on on wordsmithing copy? Just remember that every word matters. It, it's just something about it. an interesting thing. I don't know if we've mentioned this before, is that even with food, how Kentucky Fried Chicken changed their name to KFC because of the word fried. And that's what we need to realize is that these words trigger emotions, especially with food. I think we mentioned before the the old uh, Pantagonia toothfish. Remember that, Steve? Yes, I do. <laughs> so Americans would not eat this Pantagonia toothfish. Well, we have mahi-mahi and we have toothfish. And you can feel inside it just triggers the wrong feeling. Even when they say, oh, it's very tasty, it's very good, the toothfish is one of the best, it just doesn't feel right and nobody would order it. So they changed the name, and you've probably eaten it, to Chilean sea bass, <laughs> okay? And now it's overfished, it's oversold. And the reason I bring that up, whether it be food or your copy, these words trigger emotions, these feelings, these uh, attitudes that you have to be aware of. You can't just assume that if it doesn't make you feel tense or uneasy, it's not the same for other people. I just have to say it again, every word matters, or what Mark Twain said. He said the difference between the right word and the wrong word is difference between lightning and a lightning bug. Yep, yep, you're right, you're right. Or it's the difference between Patagonian toothfish and, <laughs> let's see, what's a fish I really don't like? I can't remember. There's one I don't like out there. Oh, you know what? I'm not really crazy about salmon lately. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be in the mood for salmon. That's a different tasting fish compared to all the other ones. Yeah, but the Chilean sea bass, that's good stuff. That's a, a top three fish for sure. It is up there. And now since they've changed the name, they've been very popular. It's been overfished. So it's just interesting how nobody would order the toothfish. Didn't want to try it out. But Chilean sea bass just rolls off our tongue. It certainly does. Why don't we queue up the Homer? Homer, bring it. Go, go, go. So you've got this one about a guy who who didn't really know how to position his product. And it's, a, you know, in the holiday spirit of things. Let, let us have it. This one's a little bit different, Blunder. This is the holiday time. And he just didn't know and didn't think about it. He was a musician. It was one of those open air, kind of a mall type areas. And they bring in performers to sing carols and to sell their CDs. And I just noticed that it's human nature that he was singing. He was doing a good job, had a really good voice, had CDs for sale just up on the, the stage area. But everyone was just kind of standing back. Nobody wanted to get close. And he didn't sell very many CDs. And I didn't have a chance to talk to him. I wanted to. The old, the quickest solution for something like that, he should have invited all his family and friends to get up close, to start cheering. Maybe have them buy some of the CDs to get that involvement because people just are that way, whether it be a, a swap meet or a flea market. And you, there's nobody in your area or even a shop in the mall. Nobody's in there. There's a little social validation thing about being with groups and what other people are doing. And all he had to do was just kind of get everybody out there, have them cheer a little bit, have them maybe even purchase CDs, let other people know it's okay to come to the front to enjoy the music. Otherwise, you're just kind of everyone's just kind of walking far away, standing far away. They were enjoying it, but he didn't make very many sales. Mm, that's a blunder, and musicians are guilty of that a lot because they think they can just make good music and then the people will come. And that's not the case. We have to tell our prospects a lot of. And it's not overtly, but we have to subtly tell them, this is how you react to my product, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is what you do when it is presented to you. And I just remembered while you were saying that, because I had, I had made some comments to my wife 
back on Thanksgiving, we were watching, I think it was the, the Dallas Cowboys or somebody, and they had the halftime show, which these halftime shows for big football games are just out of control, okay, as you know. And <laughs> they brought, I think it was Pitbull, he's a, a rapper guy, and they bring out this big stage into the middle of the field, but of course, it would be pretty awkward to have him putting on this high-energy concert, and there's, what, 50 yards of grass between him and the nearest spectator? And so what did they do? They brought in all these groupies that were obviously just fake, right? Probably 100, 150 of them and had them congregate right around the stage. And they're just right there in the middle of the field, jumping up and down, going crazy during the whole performance because they needed to have that. They needed to have people going crazy around him to create the atmosphere so that people would like the music. Otherwise, it was just a total empty field. But, it, you know, they're obviously groupies, but it still had the desired effect. And another reason they do that, which is interesting, they go to these dance clubs or these schools, they hire all these people to come do that, and then they tell the parents, well, if you want to watch so-and-so dance, you're going to have to get a ticket. And, of course, the parents <laughs> want to see their kids dance, so they have more sales and more concessions. They have the social validation. The crowd likes it more. It's all of the above, so well done. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a bigger con than the whole Santa thing. <laughs> Not that Santa's a con feeling, kid. You're feeling kind of violated there. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> well, all right, everybody. <laughs> Remember, go to universityofpersuasion.com. We've got 50% off until the end of the year on all the products there. Uh, you can't have 50% off of free. We have some free stuff there, too. Right. But if you want to really take things up to the next level, which this is when you start thinking about it, because next year's 2015, do you want to have another year like you did this year or do you want to do better? If you want to do better, you have to do something different. I know that's revolutionary, but you've got to make some changes, good changes, not changes just for the sake of change, but get better at what you're doing. So go there, uh, universityofpersuasion.com for information. Send us your feedback to MaximizeYourInfluence at gmail.com. Nominate your blunders, your ninjas, all that kind of stuff, or send us any questions you may have. And have a great holiday season. We will be back with you uh, first week of January with more of Maximize Your Influence. Take care, everyone. Have a good end of the year. Prepare for next year, and we'll talk to you soon.